I have one of my all-time heroes, icons, incredibleness. It is the renowned photographer Rankin. And he has been on my podcast wall. I have this podcast pot and his face has been on there for years. And I never plucked up the courage to ask him. And when I did, the nicest man said yes. Now, this is the second time I've met him. You'll have to hear the story on the podcast. The first time was rather an awkward time. Let's just put it that way. But this time was just glorious. We were able to talk about his career his highs, his lows, the incredible experiences he's had from photographing our late queen to going to the Congo with Oxfam. And I soaked up every single word of Rankin's wisdom and honesty because, as he said, he's changed as a person and the light that shone from this gentleman was quite incredible. He actually talks about the light that he photographs when he has moments with souls that he's capturing. And it really is an amazing moment to listen to somebody about a craft that they love so much that they put their entire self into every single photograph that he takes. It's a really beautiful moment that we're all going to have with Rankin himself. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration Back in 2006 I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table And since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses And I believe that having a business doing what you love Is the key to a happy, fulfilled life My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. So hello and It is Rankin here and I can't believe that I can say hello and lovely to see you again because we met and you would definitely not remember, but we met many, many years ago where I won with my business partner a photograph that you took and we had a giant red bow. That's all I can say. And we (laughs) were caught together in this big giant red bow and we had Rankin photographing us And then you would say, come over here, come and have a look. And we would have to hop in the red bow together (laughs) over to you. I I don't remember the hopping, but I remember the shoot, obviously, because (laughs) it was memorable. Also, your business was an amazing business. Thank you. I I remember being very um, excited about what you were doing back then. And um, it's gone on to do really well. And obviously, you've gone off and done other other things, but become... Serial entrepreneur, I think they call it. I think so, except I'm never doing it again. Serial serial killer and serial <laughs> what's the <laughs> I think you've got to be kind Yeah, of, I know. You've got to be you've got on the careful. sort of like in the weird, sort of like very obsessive part of your brain to do that. Never again? What does that mean, never again? Tell me. Well, as in like, you know, when they say serial entrepreneur, I almost feel like you do 
you know, once you don't really know what you're doing. Yes. Twice you think, oh, I can better that. Yeah. Three times I'm like, come on. So I'm just going to be stopping it too, for, for sure. Okay. It was such an honour to meet you at that time. And so, thank you for those kind words. It went on to actually me meeting you and our photograph being blown up on the OXO Tower. Yes, which, it did. I mean, that's a life moment there. It's never going to happen again. But here I am with you. You've said yes. You've been on my wall. Your face has been on my podcast wall for years, but I've never plucked up the courage to ask you because I just knew no way was I going to get ranking. And here I am looking at you. An amazing moment. It's very exciting to be here. And I have to tell you that the reason that I said yes to this, apart from having a lovely experience with you when I met you, was that my wife is obsessed by you. But she is an entrepreneur herself now and she launched is. her own Tooley brand. Tea. Tooley T, yeah. So Tooley T. And I couldn't my... say no. I, I, it was almost <laughs> like I'm going to meet the Queen um, when um, I said I was doing this. So she was like, sorry, what was that? You know, she's quite posh. <laughs> sorry, you're doing what? You're going to mention me, aren't you? Are you seeing her in person? Can we give her some tea? I said, I'm pretty sure she's had some tea, but anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I actually so met your wife at the event as well, and she's just the nicest human being. Yeah, she is. I'm punching. I hate that expression, punching, but I am. I am definitely <laughs> above my weight in terms of boxing. Um, <laughs> when it comes my wife to her, is much far too good for me, and um, I, um, I, I know it. I think you should always know that your your partner is too good for you, so that you work much harder to make them happy. So I'm here slightly to show off to her that um, I'm actually still somebody in the world, <laughs> which is uh, very important. Well, bless Thule. I'm going to come round to her, actually. But let, okay. let me start a bit with your childhood. You were born in Glasgow, John Rankin Waddle. Is that how you pronounce it? That's correct. And, yeah. and were raised there with your parents and your younger sister, Suzanne, until you were around nine years old. And I heard your favourite word when you were growing up was the word why. Did that lead to a happy childhood? Because it seems like you were very inquisitive. Very much so. I mean, I, I would say that um, I would definitely say that my parents encouraged me to question everything. It's a very Glaswegian thing to to have this kind of why, what, you know, what, everything has to be equitable in Glasgow, whether you're a guy that lives on the street or a guy that works as a CEO or a police officer, you know, you've got to be, it's very equitable, very equal kind of um, uh, city. And I think my parents just couldn't quite believe they've, they've, they've got this kid who, um, I, for example, I couldn't walk past somebody that was living on the street without getting my mum to give me some money to give them. So I was very unique in the sense that I, I had this kind of fairness from a very early age that my parents weren't quite sure where it came from and, um, and they encouraged it and they encouraged me to say why and what and who uh, which I I can't you know again I can't um, under underestimate or uh, um, I'm overwhelmed at how important that became to me in my mm. kind of later years to the point that we had no I had no art or creativity in my family apart from I think my mum was a, quite a good she could draw a little bit and she was quite good at it 
Um, but I obviously didn't follow it because that's not what a working class Glaswegian young girl did mm -hmm. at, at that time. And um, my aunt worked in an art gallery, but she was, she was, I think she was the accountant. So, um, or the manager, she wasn't, she wasn't on the art side of it. So, um, yeah, this idea of, of asking questions, although it was very Glaswegian to have that contrarian attitude, um, was very much encouraged. And mm. um, I can't, you know, can't thank my parents enough for that because I've made a career out of that. So. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'm wondering if this is basically what made you the creative mind, you know, that you felt that you could challenge the status quo. Because, you know, let's face it, some of the brightest, most innovative minds are those who are pushing boundaries and driving change. Do you still think the Rankin today is as inquisitive as the young Rankin? Yes, I do. Um, absolutely think, I think that I'm, if anything, more inquisitive because I can see that it leads to really some great things, um, whether it's discussion, debate or even change. I can see that it has that power, whilst at the same time also seeing there are, there's so many things that are inequitable in our society. So I think for me, this this idea of asking questions is essentially what makes me a good portrait photographer because I, I'm very inquisitive about people. I love people. I'm fascinated by people's stories. I would say I'm a humanitarian above and beyond anything else. I'm not political um, really in the kind of the, the true sense of being a, a politician, but I'm, or, or, and I'm definitely not um, religious at all. Whereas I am very much about hum, humanity and human mm. beings. So, and that's at the essence of the portrait photography. And then the things I've done beyond portrait photography, which obviously are, I've, I've lived a bit of a charmed life to be able to do all these other things. It, it, they all come from asking questions like, why does everybody have to be the same on a magazine cover? And, why does everybody have to be smiling all the time? And, you know, why do we not have real people in advertising? Th those types of questions. Why do we not talk about death, for example? It's so bizarre. Mm. So, and that comes from my parents when I was growing up, never saying, don't ask such stupid questions because they're not stupid, you know? So yeah, whether it's built into my DNA, which I think my family would probably say that I came, you know, when I, when the minute I started talking, it was why, or it was because I was uh, encouraged to do so, or it's a combination of the two, I can't tell you, yeah. but I definitely yeah. give a lot of props to my parents for, for um, being br brilliantly patient with me and enjoying it. And also, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the cute kind of kid I was then, but uh, if you look at me, you would probably see the child, but the child when I was sort of three, four, five, I was seriously cute with dimples and big bright eyes. And so this kind of idea of being able to kind of ask questions was really encouraged. And, and um, yes, I still do it now. I can't, it's almost, I can't help myself really. Is, um, it, and it can really... be a bit of a problem. You know, sometimes you're like, my wife's like, shut up. Yeah, <laughs> just... Just accept it, please. Yeah, don't don't yeah. ask why. But the, I but, mean, the, but it's also people in my office that say that the worst thing that they they get from me is I've got an idea. They hate it when it's a bit like at the end of um, the Italian job. 
<laughs> you know, they're waiting for this idea to come, and it, and I, and I have so many of them that it's that it can, can become overwhelming because I've just am so. That's what excites me. I get excited yeah. like now. I, I go for a walk with the dogs, and by the end of the walk, I've got four ideas. Yeah, and um, and people are going, "Oh God, stop having Please ideas! Please stop it! No yeah. more dog walks! <laughs> no more dog walks!" Yeah. <laughs> um, your work is obviously incredibly powerful, and I recently saw you've just spoken about you know why we don't talk about death, and I recently saw your photographs of the Holocaust and genocide survivors, and some of the portraits of the NHS workers taken during COVID. So it's the why we've spoken about the why, but. Why is it important to capture their spirit and their essence? I think that when I went to college, my tutors told me you couldn't do that. And I and I, I just always disagreed with them. I always felt that you could not necessarily capture all of somebody's humanity within one picture, but definitely a slice of it or a part of it or an essence of it. And I think that not to be too kind of philosophical about it but i think that human beings are incredibly complex and visual communication especially today is 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 so important and i think within that visual communication we can we we can encode and decode things very very quickly like photographs really should be able to work within milliseconds but then leave a sort of a, um, a something that's an essence that's still there, a, a kind of afterglow um, that makes you hopefully think something or feel something. So I realised that very early on as a photographer that actually photographs are very personal. So when you look at a photograph, even if it's on a social media platform, it's your individual relationship with the photograph. It's not like a TV show or a documentary or a film where there's a kind of more communal thing about it photographs if you look at a magazine it's very individual even if you're seeing an advertising billboard it's a very immediate individual thing so when I realized that I started to talk to my um, subjects in terms of me being a vessel for them to communicate with the person Mm. that was seeing it and I, and I, I always say look through the lens don't look at the lens imagine you're talking to somebody and you know you're speaking with your physicality and and um i think that although it might seem like a bit of a trick it's actually it's not a trick it's it's just really sort of laying the foundations of what we do as human beings in terms of you know like i can you you you're probably because you do so many of these you 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 know that you can understand so much about someone mm. from the way they are in front of the camera or they are when they walk in the room or they are when they like I always used to love like being able to sit in a restaurant and and um sort of talk about I think those that couple do this and that that person over there does that and because (laughs) uh that game of kind of being able to guess it's I mean that is a bit of a game but that idea of we as 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 human beings we give off so much information visually Mm. that's very easy if you're a photographer, because then you're, you've got this frame and you just need to work out how to, to use it. And I think you can, there is things you can capture about humans in, within those photographs. And what's really interesting is now that we all use digital, what I've found is that so many p- 
people that are in front of the lens when they have their photograph taken, when they see the picture, they're like, oh, you know, one of my favorite things is when they say, that really looks like me. And what they mean by that is not that it looks like them, but it kind of captures something about them. So, and when you've been doing it as long as I have, um, and you've taken as many photographs as I have, that becomes second nature. So I don't even, it's like I can sort of tell what the light reading is in a room without having to have a light meter. And I can kind of sum stuff up very quickly. And of course you get it wrong. I get ages. I used, I love to guess people's ages and I get it wrong all the time, but the whole act of saying, I think you're this, it just tells you so much about people, um, how they react to that. So, so you just get used to being able to do these things and doing them very, very, very quickly. And then, and then when you do that, you don't want to just do it with celebrities. I've never just wanted to photograph famous people because that's not interesting. Photographing, you know, when you when I started, I just wanted to photograph the whole world. I was like, I wish I could just photograph every single person and that would be my kind of life's work. But um, you just end up kind of getting excited about individuals and then you have these brilliant moments where you photograph somebody. I did a project called Rankin Live, which has been going ongoing since 2009, where I photograph people that come into the studio they've never a lot of them haven't had their photographs taken professionally before and i've had people break down and cry because they're not seen or they don't feel they've been seen in a certain way or mm. you know or they've they've maybe got some body dysmorphia or and and yeah. it, it's so powerful and this is the brilliant thing about photography the power of photography is intense and it's very easy for it to be positive, but it's also very, very easy for it to be very negative. When you speak, you speak about this sort of the aura, the light, the the soul shining through and that you're now equipped to almost see that because of the length of time that you have been working. And it must be difficult when you're tackling such emotive areas like we just spoke about, the Holocaust or genocide. You also... I love the piece of work, Alive in the Face of Death, um, when you photograph those living with terminal illness. And I know that you sadly lost both of your parents within weeks of each other in 2005, which is a huge amount for anyone to deal with. Was this project a way potentially of helping process some of those emotions around death? And I'm totally Mm. in agreement with you, by the way, about this thing that we do, which is just, you know, act as if death is not just you know, around us all the time and that we don't speak about it or have a healthy relationship with it. Yeah, absolutely. It was because my parents passed away and I was so ill-equipped to deal with it that I used what I know, which is photography. I know the best, sorry, which is photography to be able to process it. And that was very beneficial for me. And then once I've done that, I have this knowledge and an understanding and I want to talk about it. And it's really interesting because I just did a project the year before last, um, which was about loss. And uh, I went on so many radio and TV shows about it. And the normal interview time is about five to six minutes. And every every interview I wanted to do 12, 15 minutes uh, because they wanted to talk about it. They wanted, they'd lost somebody and they wanted to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Whether it was even a pet, you know, my pet's yeah. just passed away. And I, I'm always surprised 
and I've had, had two pets pass away since my parents passed away, which is really lucky. And each time the amount I've become emotional is intensified because it's all of the other people I've lost yeah, have suddenly of, come, yeah. has triggered that response. And I think that that's the, the thing about what I do is, and that's why I don't really, you know, it's, it's great to work with Oxfam or to work with the NHS. And, and I, I, I count that as a kind of privilege, but it's really trying to use the ability that I've got to sort of take somebody and see them and be able to then emote f them through a photograph that's, that's the, the skill. And of course, if you're, if you care about human beings, you want to support things that you feel you want to support things that you feel are really important. So, but I, I don't, you know, I don't want to go out and, you know, wave the flags about it. Whereas something like the alive in the face of death, what I realised was that we just don't talk about it. So mm. if we sit and I, you know, bring it to the to the um, attention of the media and I can do interviews about it, then that's really interesting because if I can talk about it, because I'm terrible about talking about things, it took me till I was 40 to go to therapy um, and I'm really glad I did. But I think if I can talk about it and I'm this kind of quite sort of, blokey bloke then then anybody can talk about it so mm. because i'm terrible at it so yeah and of course because i'm this contrarian from being brought up that way at the same time i'm going why don't we i don't understand why we don't talk about it. i remember my dad passed away and we didn't get to see his body and it was so strange i was Whereas with my mum, it was it was very it was much more gentle. With my dad, it was very anaesthetised. It was very kind of mm. you know the doors of the hospital, the uh, accident emergency where he was he was there were closed, and that was it. And I, and I thought that is wrong. This is not the way to do it. And nothing. That's not because of the hospital or or the medical yeah. profession. That's just. A cultural the way we do it. shift, yeah. yeah. So, and and that and what's great about cultural shifts is you can shift them the other way. So then you get you think, well, oh, I've got this ability and potential to do it, and why wouldn't you? So if I'm going to market products to people that I, you know, maybe don't believe in as much, I should be able to use that power to power to, to do, do something. Well, yeah. My next um, question to you was was around that. I interviewed a really interesting interesting gentleman called Greg Hoffman, who was the former CMO um, for Nike for 30 years. Oh, wow. And he believes that, you know, he was talking a lot about visual storytelling and creativity and the truth can be revealed and it can inspire us Definitely. to basically join movements and change our society. And you've said a photograph is like a seduction, like a relationship compressed into a moment. So would you say that that is the, you talked about changing society through that creative medium. Has that been your experience? A lot of the time, yes, absolutely. And I think when you do great projects, whether it's a portrait or whether it's a commercial piece of work, when it's good and it comes from the right place, like when I, when I did the Dove campaign or when I photographed the Queen or when they come from a place where you mm. you know that, Either you're trying to change the kind of stereotypes of of what people think of, or you're trying to show the queen in a way that she's never been seen before. Yeah, 
then, of course, there is, it's very seductive, but it's also very enlightening. It's very, um, it can be very exciting, you know, to get that front row seat on something like Dove or to be able to photograph um, the Queen as, oh, wow, you know, the buzz you get from it is amazing. And and then, and then you know, when you see the, the numbers of people that have been influenced by that, I mean, I... I, I look now at the advertising um, landscape and purpose is so important to uh, what marketing has become. And of course, a lot of people dislike that. They feel that it's kind of a one trick pony, but actually it's, it's probably changed so much. You're saying in a good culturally, way. Culturally, socially. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. In a good yeah, way, yeah. yeah. In, a really, in a really good way. And of course, you know, it's created some very, very boring pieces of work because any trope will create boring pieces of work it's when you've got a kind of mm. uh, category way of doing something it does become boring you know there's no question there's there's really boring nike ads yeah there's really boring social media th- things around empowerment you know it's like empowerment in its in itself is it's become a bit of a kind of strange yeah expression because it can be used for everything so but at the same time, when you look go back to 2003 when that uh, campaign happened and I was so instrumental and... You're talking about Dove. So much a part of... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Real Beauty campaign. Unbelievable. Yeah, it was an incredible thing to do. Not because it did sold lots of, of product, although it did sell lots of product, but because it was a, sh- mm-hmm. a cultural and social shift that... We started and Unilever supported it. Was that 2003? I think it was 2003, yeah. yeah. I mean, look at that, ahead of its time. And as you said, look, what, yeah, so it's 20 look years, what's happened. Nearly 20 yeah. years ago. God, I know. It's when you work things out like that and you're <laughs> like, know. come on, not really. You just go, no. <laughs> but it, it's, <laughs> look what it has created, the domino effect yeah. of that. And and I would say, yeah, absolutely. I want to just go back to your story because I know you moved to North Yorkshire when you were nine years old and you lived there for uh, around four years before moving again to Hertfordshire. These are quite informative years yeah. of our life. And I think we might all presume you grew up or you started, you know, there was a period of your life that you just had art and culture all around you. No, but, I, not at all. but this wasn't the case, which I think no, we always think, no. don't we, for someone like Rankin, my God, he must have just been born in, into this world. But you weren't. No. It's astounding. Tell me about that period of time in your life. No, and it's it's really great that you asked that question because I think it's really important for younger people, maybe that are listening, or even people that presume. So many people presume things about people yes. that are successful. I think that it becomes quite boring <laughs> having to um, uh, explain yourself. But I re- no one ever asks me that, and um, I definitely didn't have any creativity in my life until really I started going out with a girl called Samantha Jones, who was a fashion, she was a, loved fashion at, at school. We were at school together. And she was my first introduction to, oh, wow, this is a world and it's a career. And she was going on to study fashion um, design. So up till then, I had nothing. And it was instrumental, that relationship was instrumental in me sort of making changes but if anything the good thing about changing schools and moving and I and I and I 
um, would definitely recommend this to parents is it allows their um, children to reinvent themselves. Mm. So moving from Scotland to Yorkshire, I, I kind of was my first experience of reinventing myself and, and then moving from Yorkshire where I had a thick Yorkshire accent, which I can still do. Um, yeah, it was very funny. And um, it's a good accent. I like, oh, I love Yorkshire. Love, I love people from Yorkshire. love Yorkshire accent. Yeah. I love I love Yorkshire, and um, and then I moved to St Albans. So again, I got to reinvent myself, and and I and I couldn't have really ended up in a better place than St Albans because culturally it was very mixed. It was a very mixed uh, society. Um, it's quite a rich um, commuter town, but it had a really good, you know, DNI was amazing, and um, and um, especially at my school, it was such a good school. I went to a comprehensive and. Um, and it was really brilliant for me. It was the best place for me to finish because I also, my parents did this brilliant thing because I moved halfway through the year. I went back a year and it just made me super confident and all these things that I don't know if my parents knew they were doing them or if it was, you know, a bit of luck and a bit of them being very sort of believing in me. My dad really believed in me. My dad's got some great stories or had some great stories about going to parents' evenings and which he would always come back and tell me about what he said to the <laughs> teachers. And so he was always backing me and supporting me. But but what was funny, there was no creativity. So when I decided um, to do anything creative, my dad didn't talk to me for a year. He just couldn't believe that he'd back this guy i actually heard rankin that we nearly lost you to accountancy which you know and and and, and i don't think there was any chance of losing me to it but no, yeah but that you were yeah. you, that's what you were doing you were doing you know you were studying to be a, a, an accountant and that you decided you picked up the camera you had this moment am i right in saying you went back to do your a levels and study photography did, yeah. which triggered this your dad's yeah. reaction which was he didn't speak yeah. to you for 18 months because, you know. Yeah, he didn't speak to me. And I lived in the house with him. And he wouldn't speak to me. It was very, very funny. No. But at the same time, yeah, I lived. I had to go back and live at home. This was the embarrassing bit <laughs> because I got to do, I went to Brighton Poly to do accountancy. Um, I was there for two terms and I was in this halls of residence with lots of art students. And by the second end of the second term, I was like, I'm not doing this. This is not me at all. And being encouraged by these art students to kind of follow your own, you know, your own kind of dreams. And then went home and pretended to go to the third term, which was quite <laughs> funny, and was just taking photographs. And then I had to say to my dad, I think it was in the kind of September, yeah, I, I, I dropped out in June and I haven't been and and I didn't take the final exams and I'm living here and, and he was like, well, you've got to get a job, you know. And, of course, photography back then, today it's super easy. You just pick up a, your phone and mm -hmm. you go for it. But um, back then it cost so much money. So I had to work very, very hard yeah. just to process a film and, and things like that. But um, at the same time, I would never have done it if my parents hadn't really encouraged me to be a contrarian because... That idea of just following your own path. Like I remember my mum and my dad, but my mum said to me, if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. This is pre me even going to college. So this idea of, of doing something you love 
was kind of inbuilt because my dad loved his job. My dad absolutely loved what he did. He worked for an oil firm as a marketing, a sales and marketing guy, and he enjoyed every single minute, um, or he seemed to. That's what he, the way he, he talks about it. So this idea of enjoying what you do was really, again, inbuilt yeah. to me. So when I did decide to do it, they, he didn't talk to me, and it was quite strange, but at the same time, it was quite enjoyable because he was the one that encouraged me to be like that. Every week, I hand over this part of the podcast to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Dell Technologies are committed to empowering all small business owners with the tools and technology to innovate. They're also particularly committed to supporting female entrepreneurs, empowering them to connect, collaborate and lift one another up through a support community called Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, or DWEN for short. Holly and Co and Dell are aligned in our mission to support all female founders and have a shared belief in the power of storytelling. So by spotlighting the entrepreneurial success, failures and lessons learned in a supportive and unique forum, Dwen enables a community of like-minded women to share experiences, lift one another up and create new business opportunities and explore global expansion and solve challenges together. Did I mention it's also free to join? To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now, back to our conversation of inspiration. Can I ask, with that moment that you, you know, you're you're studying accountancy, you've got the support for your parents, you pick up the camera, something happens. How did you know? Because then you went back and you did an A-level and you went back home and you had to live there. And do you know what I mean? It was like regressive, yeah. almost what you were doing to yourself and your progress, so to speak. But you stopped yourself in your tracks and you went, this is me. Yeah. And I, I asked that question, whether you can remember that moment, because there's so many people and I deal, actually, this is what I deal a lot with now, people feeling like that's it, that life's done, you know, and I'm almost really advocating life is just beginning for you. It's the dawning of you, you know. Yeah. I just want to pinpoint that moment because I... I'd love to know how you knew, because I think a lot of people are searching right now for what, yeah. what is, who are they now? You know, kids, everything's mm. done. Who are they now? And it, it might help them to understand why you knew. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a big question. Oh, I know. Freaking hell. Sorry about that. Um, no, it's good. It's good. Big questions are good. But I, I think there's, for me... And it's a really good question. There was two things that were really absolute kind of game changers for me. The first one was when I picked up a camera for the first time and I kind of had this kind of absolute autonomous agency that just went, I'm in control of this and it's mine and... I remember even looking through the lens. I remember it like it was yesterday and thinking, I can show the world how I see it. Wow, that's crazy. Mm. And suddenly this kind of whole part of my personality that hadn't been able to express itself, 
the bit of me that hadn't been able to express myself, the bit of me that couldn't write that well, but knew I had the ability to speak, just couldn't do it or I couldn't draw or I couldn't act. I thought maybe I could act, but I wasn't really in, you know, there wasn't really that kind of background at my school. Um, suddenly it was like, it was like a light bulb. It was like, oh, you can do it. Now you can do it. And then the second bit was everybody's reaction to it was so negative that I thought there must be something right because everybody thinks it's wrong. <laughs> and I know that sounds a bit sort of, con again, contrary, but I'm very much, if you tell me not to do something, I'm the sort of person, if there's a switch that says don't touch, I can't help myself. I'm like, that switch, like, what's, what does it do? What, and I start thinking about it. And so I think that it was the, the immediacy of, wow, I can really communicate how I feel now. And that was the power of that was incredible because it really did give me this, like, I am now solo and I was great. And then the idea of people going, no, and me going, wow, you're saying no. That's like basically fuel to my engine. <laughs> so um, those two yeah. things. And I think if you feel those two things, that, and of course, a lot of creative people will talk about imposter syndrome. And I think that I definitely had a lot of feelings of imposter syndrome when I started. And especially when I started to become successful, I was like, should I be earning this amount of money? And is this really morally right? And you know, to be able to do this job and have that kind of... I, I remember I got paid once the sort of... the a year's salary for, that my dad would have got paid when he was at the height of what he was doing. And I just thought, this isn't... This feels wrong. And you feel that fuels your kind of feeling of, mm -hmm. am I really that good? Am I mm -hmm. really that... What's my value? Mm. You know, am I really worth that? And then, of course, just creatively thinking, is this actually a good photograph? But I was also such a kind of contrary individual that once I decided to do it, there was no way I would have let myself yeah. not be successful. Yeah. And then the only other thing I would say is that going, especially if you're young, maybe for the older people that are listening, if you've got those feelings, you should just do it. Whereas the one thing I've learned about my younger self is that I was the camera gave me something that stopped me being shy. Yeah. So it allowed me, and it's I was all... quite confident, kid, but I was still shy. And it gave me something to hide behind, to use as a kind of key or as a kind of a door into people's lives, a window into people's lives. And then the worst bit of that is I just became a bit of a show off in a group so and I really wish I hadn't done that because it wasn't really my personality so it's just once you've kind of sort of realized this is it you just kind of need to also map out how you're going to use it mm. I think and I think it's really important and also I think creatively one of the things that very few people say about creativity is it comes with huge responsibility mm. and that's something that I think I've learned more and more and more over the years is that especially as a professional photographer, I have a responsibility and it's a very important thing to recognise that you have 
a responsibility to yourself, you know, to, to be true and honest with yourself, to look at yourself in the mirror about who you are and what you are, even use photography to help you with that, which mm. I've done with lots of projects, to the subject, you know, to make sure that, that you're true to them. Um, and I think that one's one of the most important ones. Um, and I've been doing that for years. Like a, a lot of photographers, um, well, they have to now go back and ask for permission to use photographs. I've always done it. It's something that I've been very, um, I've been very kind of confident and sure about that it should be using a, a person's image. Yeah. Is, is, it's a mutual thing. It's a collaborative thing. And then also to the audience, it's like, what are you putting out in the world? Um, and is it good? Is it a positive thing? So I think, and that's whether you're a copywriter or a writer or a, a script mm-hmm. writer, you know, or a, a podcast uh, presenter. I think it's it's that idea of, being analytical and I the one thing I did learn very early and I think that I would always this is one thing I would pass on to people is you've got to be your biggest critic you can't allow the critics to get there first you need to get there first and you need to to self-analyze not just your work but yourself and where you sit within the work and and of course you've also got to be able to leave that at the door once you've done it. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to go, okay, I've done that. And I think, again, that imposter syndrome, that I was very encouraged very early by myself, but other people to be critical of myself. So I always say 51% your biggest fan, 49% your biggest critic. Because when people come to you and criticise you, the thing you want to be doing is going, I've already done that. Yeah, yeah. I've already, <laughs> oh, I've yeah. already thought, I've already thought about that. <laughs> and you know, I agree. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. I agree. I totally agree with that. And, um, and also the other thing, the other thing about photography, and it's very different. I've made a, f- a feature film as well. And there's a very big difference between a feature film and, and doing a photograph is, is that people have a, f- a very individual. I remember, I, sorry, I was talking about this at the beginning it's a kind of what's the right personal relationship people have with art or creativity or storytelling. And you have to remember that when your work goes out into the world, it doesn't, it's no re, it's no longer your work really. It's their work and they, and how they see it. And I see. when, and I, and I worked out when I did the feature film, I, I used to get these people t- talking about it for like 10, 15 minutes. And normally a photograph's maybe five minutes, you know, and I worked out the amount of time that people give something from themselves. They feel that they owe it to you to remind you that it's theirs. So mm. if they sit and watch something for 90 minutes, they feel that they've got 90 minutes worth of their life invested in it. Um, mm. So someone buys your book and they become more invested in it. But if they just see a picture, I don't know, in, a, in an exhibition, it's fleeting, you know, so... Um, and also that because that works out there and it's their work, you have to kind of let it go because people read so many different things into your work. You can't, some of the stuff people read into it, I'm always surprised and shocked and a reflection I'm very of themselves excited about. in a way. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It says more about them. Yeah. yeah. And actually my letter that I'm writing to myself 
talks a bit about the fact that actually all of our um, societal norms are different. Like, you know, my society, what I think society is and what you think society is, mm. even though we live in mm-hmm. a very a bit of a, bu- a beautiful bubble, they're very different. Yeah. And we're very similar probably yeah. in background and, yeah. Yeah. and upbringing. But you still, like I like, I hate Marmite. Yeah. You, you love might like Marmite. Marmite. And, I, and I think, yeah. and you have to really appreciate that, I think. And yeah. I think that's super important, especially when you're creative, because if you put stuff out into the world and um, people don't like it, you can't take it personally. It's not, it's not about you. It's about them a lot yes. of the time. Yeah. And you've got to let it, you've got to let it go. And so that 49% critic, you're reminded of, you have to remind yourself of that, I think. It goes back to, isn't it, to therapy. And I've recently sort of gone, you know, started um, back in with some therapy. And, and it is that reminder, isn't it, that so much of what we hear from other people is actually completely just about them and actually not a lot about you. And, and it's, Absolutely. and you just, Absolutely. if you're not reminded that, you, you can very, very easily forget it. And, and I love it. Yeah. Go on. I, no, I mean, I think, and just on that, I think it's really important that my path, my, you've got a beautiful world map behind you. My map is going to be very different from your map. It's mm. going to be, and if you take someone's map and try and follow it, you're never going to get to where you want to go. You need to create your own map and your own route. And, and so things like what, you know, I, I always think, I always kind of, give myself an asterisk on this stuff, which is like, this is just my opinion. Like, don't, do not take that as read. And and we have to be able to make mistakes as well. Like, th- that's so important in, especially creatively. I, I've made so many creative mistakes. So if you don't put yourself out there, you won't learn, but you're going to do things wrong, whether it's, you know, the shutter speed on your camera or you know, not exposing your film properly back in the day. And I did so many, I remember I was asked to do my aunt's wedding and I was late and I've never been late for anything since. So I didn't get to photograph the wedding and I won't do weddings because of that. Oh, God. But, um, you know, That's I a Notting Hill, is it a four weddings and a funeral moment, isn't it? Yeah, it was awful. It was, she was getting remarried in a registry office in um, Chelsea and I didn't get there. So I missed the wedding and then went to the, um, you know, to the reception and had to, you know, had to do the walk of shame. photographic shame of the photographer didn't turn up. So, um, and I've, I don't think I've ever been late. I think maybe I've not turned up to a couple of shoots, but there's been reasons and someone else has stepped in. But, um, you know, um, especially in the mid nineties, um, I think there's one or two that I didn't, but that was more just being, believing, that's an, again, believing your own, hype and thinking you're a rock star not a you know jobbing photographer and that's the that's the other that's the other piece of advice i give people like don't believe the hype you know that's something i learned i learned the hard way i had to learn the tough way of you know this this thing that people when you when you start to kind of be called a genius somebody called me a genius the other day, i'm like i'm really absolutely not a genius i learned that one mm. the tough way because Again, it's this other person's perception of you is so it's like you said at the beginning, people have this idea of how you got somewhere and it actually I've tried to learn from every mistake I've ever made and I definitely definitely, especially now, would never not turn up 
on time for something. You spoke about the imposter syndrome, which is not something actually I've I've heard a lot of men talk about on this podcast. And, you know, you if we go back to that, that sort of beginning time for you, the early days when you were crafting as a photographer, you did find yourself shooting some of the biggest names in the music industry. You're also making a name for yourself as a co-founder of the groundbreaking and unbelievably cool magazine Dazed and Confused. And it was a real defining era, wasn't it? Cool Britannia. Yeah. That moment in your life, that that whole section, that was on the up. Is that if, if we if I'm going to ask you at the end of this podcast about your roller coaster moment? If this is if you're on the roller coaster, would you say that's the cart chugging its way up to the height? Absolutely. I think that when you're in that moment of it's so strange because I think when I became a publisher, so I became a photographer and a publisher probably within a year of each other because I started. Um, publishing student union magazines or two years let's say so I was immediately struck by publishing as a way of becoming successful because that was you know I always say that was the things that they did I mean, my house they made films they made commercials you know it wasn't people that I knew yeah. it wasn't yeah I didn't have an understanding of them and then I, I walked into college at the London College of Printing to do photography the first day, and there was a magazine, and they'd done it. And I suddenly realised I could be part of them. So my publishing career started within, you know, as I said, a couple of years of becoming a photographer. So this idea of being in control yes. and empowered of your own medium, back then that was the medium. Yes. So... This went hand in hand. And I think that given that my success was kind of a little bit self-perpetuated. Mm. And when you're self-perpetuating your success, you've got to be very arrogant and very egotistical to drive it forward because you kind of have to not take any prisoners yeah. and not, in your own head, you need to be so confident that you're going to be successful that, this kind of imposter syndrome that only really started to kind of get into my head in my sort of in the late nineties, when I started to just be paid this crazy amount of money that I just couldn't understand. But at the beginning, this up, this kind of the, the immediate success. I mean, it was never immediate. I no. it took, you know, six, seven years for, for, for me to become so, you know, sustainable as a, 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 a in terms of, earning enough money to be a photographer. And before that, we would we would have done anything literally to earn a bit of cash. But, um, you know, when when we were getting there, no, I, I had, I, I, my eye was on the prize. And and I think that, that, again, I go back to the one thing I would change about that time is I would be more restrained in my self-belief. And I don't mean I wouldn't have self-belief. I just wouldn't be you know, so single mm -hmm. uh, vis visioned about it, you know, so, you know, I was so blinkered that I couldn't see some of the stuff that I think is really important now. Like, for example, I would, I would always recommend young creatives look around them a little bit, you know, it was that risky business uh, <laughs> quote, isn't it? Sometimes you've got to slow down and, you know, take a moment and look around you. Um, 
and um, I didn't listen to Tom Cruise. I just, um, is it Tom Cruise or is it Matthew Broderick? Is it? Um, no, it's t- it, Tom um, Cruise. Isn't it? Is risky it business, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I, risky business. I'm sure it is, yeah. yeah it's it is. when he's wearing it the is, shirt, yeah. isn't it? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he's got it's bare legs he's and he's doing the whole thing. Yeah. I'm sure that's he's him. Doing Can I ask you something? What What was the moment? Yeah, of course. Can I ask? You see, so you're going up six, seven years. You do anything, yeah. you know, and basically you were... You were like a racehorse with your blinkers on because you had the yeah. eye on the prize. And that prize was to become a famous photographer, that you could do this as a living forevermore. And that was the thing. Yeah. Do you have a moment that it happened? Like when you say, and then I got cre- paid my dad's salary in one shoot. Yes. What yes. was that moment? Because then obviously that then became a domino effect. There were lots of little moments. Yeah. I mean, I always think that, People that there are certain talents that they they get that shoot or they get that job and suddenly it it changes their career. I had lots of little moments and they were definitely self perpetuating. So till ninety four ninety five, they were very much me. Kind of, I remember like I get the magazine covers that I'd done and I'd lay them out on the floor and I'd be like, I've done that so that means i can go there but 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 i got a gig which was the kind of gig that that really was the turning point um in terms of me going wow i can earn a living doing this and i was asked to photograph the spice girls for the big issue mm. and i knew i knew nothing about the spice girls apart from them they'd had this number one and i thought it was a really good song and I thought they were amazingly prevalent in in society or in culture as I knew. And I loved pop. I was kind of like, if you took the day's coolness, I was the least cool person in the office because I just love pop music um, as as much as I love kind of independent music. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll do this because A, I want to do something that's good because the biggest you're asking me to do it. So I did this shoot for free. I didn't take a fee for it and um, met the Spice Girls and they ran into the studio, probably spent an hour with them. And I did this shoot with them, which was, it was the most, one of the most fun shoots I've ever done. And they were just, they were, they were, they were all over the place. I mean, it was almost like herding cats. It was, <laughs> it was they were just so, they were, you couldn't even get them to just all come together. And they're just literally like, oh, could you, Jerry, could you know, like, it was amazing um, and p- beautiful and powerful and exciting. And, but at the same time, I'd been doing it enough yeah. by then to know that what the shots were that I had to get for the cover, for the in, inside. And I did some good, I, I'd say they're pretty good pictures. And um, the magazine came out and it, I think it did quite well. And I got a couple more gigs, you know, lined up that I was told that they wanted to do more more shoots with me. So the band were happy and the management were happy. But then they asked if they could buy the shoot outright for, for usage. And and I, that was my fee that I got that was right. the value of my, my father's salary. And I remember, and this is the moment, when we went to the local uh, Waitrose or Sainsbury's, I can't remember which it was, and I was with my dad and we were walking around 
this supermarket and there was a whole section of the supermarket, whole section, you know, probably, I don't know, five feet wide from top to tail. And it was all Spice Girls merchandise <laughs> that um, were my photographs. There was pencil cases, watches, clocks, cakes, and they were all my photographs of, of the Spice Girls. And I just had happened to do each of them individually to get to know them. So I do. I, I used to do this thing. I still do it, actually, if I'm shooting a band. I'll try and photograph them individually so I remember their names. Yes, yes. Make sure I know who they yeah. are, what their personalities are like. And I just did that. I did it very, very quickly because they were all over the place and very exciting. So I had all these individual pictures of them all over this merchandise and group shots all over the merchandise. And my dad went, Wow. <laughs> I was like, yeah, they're all they're all my pictures. And that moment was kind of like, um, oh, I'm, I'm a success. Yeah. You know, I'm in a supermarket. Yeah. You're in a pencil I'm case. In a supermarket. I'm in a pencil <laughs> case. Um, so that was the kind of moment where I went, Oh, this is a career. Mm. And I think I said, you know, Dad, I got paid quite a good amount of money. And of course my dad was like, How much? Yeah, how, how much was it? And um I said it was, you know this amount and he said that was my year's salary for me <laughs> you're just like wow okay so yeah. and then from there the doubt starts to creep in because you're like but it but but what you realize is it's not you it's the it's the business mm. it's not me that it's not my value it's the picture's value it's the it's the fact that that you know, there are so many kids. I mean, even even today, I'll have people come in for an interview and they'll say, did you do those Spice Girl photos? Because that changed my life. The Spice Girls, not my photos, yeah. the, the Spice Girls. And it's brilliant yeah. to have been even a tiny part of that and the kind of girl power um, movement that, you know, started obviously mm. much earlier in America, the Spice Girls commercialised it and they brought it into these young people's rooms and houses across the nation. Yeah. And it's funny because a lot of people talk about it just being about women and I was like, no, it wasn't about... It was about society yes. at that moment and it was really... I mean, obviously so many young girls were influenced, but so many young boys were influenced yeah, absolutely. as well. Oh, it, it was, so, it's, it, now we use the word empowerment, don't we? A bit like authenticity. It's all yeah. these bloody words. But then it really was, I would say, as you said, it was yeah. genderless. It was just a... It was a power that was going out. As you know, I'm passionate about the role businesses play in the world as a force for good. It's why I'm proud to partner with Avon, a beauty brand that not only does not test on animals, they do not test products or ingredients on animals anywhere in the world. They've also been working to actively campaign and change the practice industry-wide by working for the acceptance of non-animal methods for three decades. In fact, Avon was the first global beauty company to end animal testing across all products in every country in which they operate. No mean feat when they are in over 68 countries. For me, and I'm sure like you, no animal testing should be a given in this day and age. Unfortunately, though, it is. 
and it's certainly given me food for thought about the products I buy. If you'd like to learn more about Avon or doing beauty your own way by building your very own business as an Avon rep, whether that's selling online or face-to-face, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. I want to ask you, you're on your way up, you've got the Spice Girls, now it's kicking off and your career has just been you know, insane and incredible. So, so inspiring. But the world is changing now, you know, and we've social media, you know, artists being able to connect directly with their fans, all of these sorts of things. Do you see it as magic? Do you see it as progress? Is it something that we need to be worried about? I think it's definitely something we should be worried about because I think it's having such a a massive influence across society, culture, you know, nations, politics. It's not, um, it's an, an amazing power that it's been, that's been handed to the individuals, but it's, it's so easy to be misused by bad actors. And, you know, you would, you could, you could talk about democracy being undermined. You could talk about echo chambers. There's so many elements to what, handing uh, the individual this power has meant because it's also tainted by the fact that, you know, sort of five really large companies control mm. so much of what is mediated in the world and and can analyse each of us individually very easily um, to the point that they can, they can answer questions for us. And I think that that... Um, on a very basic level, the democratization of photography has meant that the kind of value of photography is is not really understood, which i I can't say is it is a good or bad thing. I think it's you know I think there's so many good things that can come from it, but so many bad things that can also come from it. So I love the fact that people are now using photography, and I love the fact that it can be. As a, as a form of communication, it's it's really um, something. It's probably the the thing that we communicate most with visual yeah. imagery now, whether it's video or, yes. or photography. And I think that we will learn to understand it more and more and more, especially as become more inquisitive about the power of it and how it could be misused. But at the same time, you know, when people ask me about social media or the social media platforms, I always say. You know, the, these platforms, these companies, they're five to ten years ahead of us now. And the things that they're thinking about aren't what bad effects they've had on the past. They're what they can do in the future. And I think that there's no, there's been so little rigour around just sort of we're, yes. we're, we're one large experiment. Yes. We're, we're a, literally like a, a worldwide experiment of like, well, what will happen if, and of course you can't stop that. Yeah. There's not, there's no way to progress is going to, there's no button, can't go back. Yeah. You know, there's it's no happening. changing it. You can try and put laws in to level it. And but again, the digital revolution or the media revolution, whatever you want to call it is, it's ahead of us and, mm. you know, governments and the, <laughs> the power that governments have, they can't see what these, they've got no 
transparency in terms of and no sight of what these companies are doing and what they're playing with and um and i think that that's that is a that is a problem in itself there should be more we should be we should be let in more to see what Absolutely. We, how we can just kind of balance it because i just think you know whether it's um what's going on with body dysmorphia or you know I, it's really interesting because i've been through two sort of two big news cycles on on this type of stuff one which was what does retouching do to you mm-hmm. in the late 90s early noughties where magazines and photographers were put you know to task over how they were influencing young people and and now it's in the hands of young people like now if yes. you're a kid 12 year old kid 10 year old kid you can photoshop yourself okay. like to the level of pretty a fairly sort of high level retoucher in the early noughties and completely change who you are and what you look like very easily and my my point isn't necessarily is that a good thing or a bad thing it's like it's what what if you were a kid and you could do that to yourself what's that doing to you Mm. it's not what's the individual experience being and of course it's a bit elvis's hips and we'll get through it and we're human being we 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 sort of we we definitely build ways of dealing with stuff like this and 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 it will find it will find a level the pendulum will Mm -hmm. find a level but it will settle yeah but at the same time now we're you know mixed reality virtual reality it's like ready player one as a film is rubbish but that's actually what yes is going to happen to quite a lot of society so i think it's 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 very interesting to be part of it but i'm very glad that i've got one foot in the past and that i've had that experience and i grew up in that time and i really look at young people today and i i do feel that they're they're the eye of a storm mm. that they might not necessarily see their in. part of they're in the middle of the twister yeah and they're kind of feeling confused and and uh, and then you know on a basic level like if you can google something then you stop thinking about how to work it out yourself <laughs> on a really basic level. Like if you can Google it, and of course um, we all love Google, but and we love to be able to yeah. have that at our fingertips. But this idea of being able to just process things, and so my my encouragement to younger creatives, and I think it's the kind of easiest way to to describe it is you have to switch off. Sometimes you have to. You know, use a map, um, mm. getting back to maps. You have to read. You have to make yourself bored. The best way to be creative is to be bored. If you're bored, you start to think. And if you're not bored, which is if you're being entertained on a 24-7, you know, digital cycle, which is what that is, then you won't be creative. And <laughs> and I think that, or you'll be creative in a different way. Yeah. And I'm not sure that that's the balance is what's really important. So on a practical level, that's what I, I try and advise younger people, whether you're in the creative industry or whatever you're in, is switch, switch off. Switch off. And is that is a, that what you do, Rankin? Because I was going to ask, yeah. like, you know, you've you've ha- you have this career, you've had these unbelievable moments, and you're married with Thule. And you're 
able to pick, choose how you're creative, who you work with. How do you stay in love with your career now? You know, in this, if I say the new well, dawning, you know, this is this section of your mm -hmm. life. What it, what is, what does that look like now? What's your world looking like with your wife, with your work, with your creativity? Well, it's very balanced for a start. So in the past, I was a workaholic and now I'm, I'm, I'm much more balanced. Like I have to find time off because I think that actually encourages me to be creative. So that's the, that's the first thing. Um, but I think I'm, it's very interesting, all these kind of AI, um, visual imagery, visual imagery or writing, my ideal in human beings, you know, that's my, that's my stock and trade is mm -hmm. the person being in the room with me and me being able to look them in the eye and try and get something out of them and get them to collaborate with me to, to make something that is hopefully a representation of them. And of course you can do that without the interaction, but it's really obvious when you don't have the interaction. So it's like a good, a good, you know, a good podcaster or a good, a good interviewer or whichever medium we're talking about. <clears throat> if you're not very good with people, mm. you don't get the best out of them. So, and I think that that, to me is where, where I love to sit, whether it's doing an interview like this or whether it's taking a portrait. I'm, my, my life is the, at its best when I'm doing that, but I balance it now. I don't. And also, and also I get to do fun things as well. Like I get to think about big projects or ideas. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I do miss the kind of, when you know, back in back in the kind of early noughties, right through to sort of two thousand and thirteen, fourteen, I was probably shooting six days a week. Wow! And I was shooting. I was like, it was constant, um, and I'm sure all of my assistants from back then hated it. But at the same time, they became great photographers yeah. because they were there in the moment doing it and really kind of probably learn a lot or definitely learn a lot. So I do miss a bit of that. I guess it's like gigging, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I like can imagine, yes. You get to, <laughs> you know, it's like performing. On stage. 360, yeah. yeah, yeah, the being, world being tour. on stage, I don't know, six, six times, 300, 300 nights a week, a year, sorry. Being on stage 300 nights a year, you get better and better and better at what you do and you miss that little bit. But I don't need it. I don't need to do it every day. Miss it, but I don't. I don't think. I don't think I'll go back now and do it. And also, everything I've learned means that I can go on stage and perform really easily yes. at the drop of a hat and enjoy it and sort of look at it from, you know, bird's eye view, kind of out of body experience, and go, God, you you really love doing this. And of course, I can continue doing that till I die. You know, so under. And, you know, yeah. as long as I can hold yeah. the camera, yeah. as long as I can hold the camera or put it on a tripod, <laughs> I can do that. It's such a gift to be able to have those moments with people or mm. a moment with somebody that you really are excited by. That's a gift. So, I, you know, the main thing is to never take it for granted and always realise that you are 
in a very unique and an amazing place. And that's a, and, and always pinch yourself. One of my mates always used to say, don't you just want to pinch it if you're in Newcastle and he's this great, you know, I can't do Newcastle accent, so I'm alive, but you just pinch yourself, don't you? And I was like, yeah, I just want to pinch myself because sometimes it is yes. incredible. Yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, this has been just the nicest moment with you, I have to say. It's just, there's no hopping with a big bow around me. It's just <laughs> been getting to know getting to know you and what a lovely soul you are. Tell me, I, I did use the analogy of that roller coaster. And if you had to pick yeah. when you were on the top of the cart and at the lowest point, let's start with the lowest point. What would you say has been a low moment? It's so hard. It's so hard. I, I don't, I've got this really terrible memory for negative things. So I think it's a safety thing for me that I just, I, I tend to kind of just try and forget those things. Uh, I think that's why I'm a photographer actually, because I've got a really rubbish memory anyway. So, but yeah, probably, I remember there was one shoot I did where I was kind of, I would call it dialing it in. I was just using my craft, you know, my ability to use a camera to do a shoot. And I can't remember what it, what it was for. It was for some terrible ad campaign. And, and I thought, oh, I shouldn't be doing this because I don't believe in it. And they're not really listening to me or my ideas. And I realized that that was what was important to the shoot. It wasn't, the craft, the craft's mm -hmm. obviously very, very important, but actually the me as being part of it is the important bit. And mm. that goes with my why contrarian, yes, you know, like asking questions that goes with that, you know, point I've, I've got a big thing where if there's something in the room that I'm not comfortable with, I point it out. Like, I'm like, is that an elephant over there? Mm. And shouldn't we be talking about it? So I think that when I've ever dulled that or dialed that down, yes. that's been a low bit. So nothing specific. But when you take Rankin out of the photographer or the moment, when you've dulled yeah. yourself and it's become about the, yeah, I totally understand that. And that's yeah. actually a lot. Yeah, it's amazing you say that. Also probably when... I wasn't me, you know, there was definitely a period where I, I had a really bad relationship in the kind of late nineties and and I went a little bit crazy afterwards where I was just I was reeling from it and and I didn't, you know, like most stupid men, I didn't look at myself in the mirror and go, You've got a problem here. Mm -hmm. And it stems from that and it's not nothing to do with the person I was in a relationship with. That was the problem yes. the relationship so it's two, two people in a relationship and I think there was a bit where I was just a bit of a dick like I was just thought I was the bee's knees and believed the hype and and um and you know all the people I met in that period I'd like to apologize to because I just believed I believed that I was you know I was kind of like above it all and and then and then you know crap cut that came crashing down to earth when just one relationship after another failed because I was just not in the right place. So, and I think that was, and, and, that, and that kind of work life mm -hmm. thing is so important. 
So meeting Thule was definitely the other side of that because then it became like we've been married, we've been together now for 17 years. So, you know, that's quite a long time. I'll probably get it wrong as well. Like it'll probably be 16 and a half years, but anyway, um, because I always get that thing wrong. And we've been married since 2009. So, you know, we've been together, but that getting that balance right was when I realised, oh, this is how life should be. And my relationships before that failed, mainly because of me, Mm -hmm. if I'm honest, because I was a workaholic and... I loved, I wanted to be successful so badly and the eye you on the, the blinkers was on. awful. So, yeah. yeah, I had the blinkers on and I think that that's the reality of of being somebody that's so single-minded, you kind of leave lots of things in your wake that you just don't, you kind of let it go and you're like, oh, no, I really wish I, I really wish I hadn't done as much of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was, there was, but there was never one moment. No. It was just, you know, and I, I, I remember kind of thinking, God, you're, you've turned into something very different from what you wanted to be. So there were a few looking at myself in the mirror, going, so nothing kind of professionally, more, yeah, more kind of personally. And on the flip of that, the the highest moment, which obviously you've had loads of of professional highs. Yeah, I mean, professional highs have been. There've been so many, and so, and they're so great. And the one thing I would say is they're very, um, they're very sort of momentary. You know, they're momentary. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. They're very very, moments in time. Yeah, they're very. They don't stay with Mm -hmm. you. I know. I know that sounds crazy, but I remember doing a video. I did a music video where I directed um, this brilliant Nelly Furtado music video with my directing partner Chris. And thinking we've made it, we're going to be massive as video directors. And it was a brilliant video. It was for a song called Say It Right and super successful. We didn't get a phone call for ages. And, you know, those moments of success where you think, wow, I'm I'm really here and I'm in the moment and it's successful. It's like they fade very quickly um, because they are not real yeah <laughs> they're real for that second but actually you know you it's don't not long lasting this idea yeah they're not long lasting and they don't they're not you know you've got to go back to your real life and that's that learning that one foot had to be in real life mm. and one foot had to be in this kind of bubble fantasy world and there are so many of them like, i remember when i went to congo with oxfam thinking this is exactly what I needed. I needed a massive slap in the face and a reminder that, you know, I'm just part of a, a kind of world of humans where everything isn't equitable and, you know, and, and, and here you go, here it is right in your face. And, and then I had to come back to the UK and speak for people, which I'd never done before. So, you know, those, mm. that was probably the most high, low moment mm. all in one, mm. because I was like, this is incredible to be able to experience and be able to use what I do and I love doing in a positive way, but to see something that's so not fair and so easy to sort out, but, you know, having to talk about it in a way which seemed reasonable and rational, you know, as a photographer. And then there's moments, even on that trip, there was moments where I just, when you just, you know, somebody, I remember somebody, 
who was on the trip with me saying, but aren't you just a fashion photographer? And me going, wow, that's how people view me. Like, just as a fashion photographer, that's really sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't want to be just be a fashion photographer. That's not, nothing wrong with fashion photographers, but that if I'm just a fashion photographer and that's how you, that's your perspective on me, then I've failed miserably. So, And you were yeah, also going to so say another hire could hear Thule's name coming oh absolutely yeah I mean I'm very 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 lucky and I pinch myself every day on that one but um yeah she she's I think being able to have somebody that can make you feel calm and and bring you down to earth and even the other day I went home and was moaning and she said what are you moaning about why are you moaning and I said you don't you just, sometimes you just don't listen to me and I get a hug, you know, an hour, an hour later or whatever. But it's just that's that's mm. very important, and I hopefully do the same with her. And I think that idea of personal um, life or private life, or you know, and public life or business uh, or career, that balance, I can't, I can't really. Um, advocate getting that balance right more. You know, I'm not trying to give advice on a like, you know, a, a kind of Hallmark card version um, in a quote or in a sentence, but that balance mm. is really great to get right because once you do, they both, they're self fulfilling, yeah. you know, they're like an inf they're an infinite curve, they're an infinity curve. It's, it's and, the um, 360, I'm isn't it? Lucky. I always call it the yeah, foundation. I, I look at the, you know, speaking to lots of business folk and, and those who are dreaming about starting. A lot of time when I go and speak to them or mentor them, we end up dealing with the scaffolding that's not there. We end up actually dealing yeah. with the fact that actually you're, you've not got the foundation for you to build you on top of. And once that's yeah. crumbling or it's not fixed or you've lived with something for too long and it's making you rotten, you know, it's that fixing. It's almost like your Thule sort of, she became a scaffolding for you in a way that yeah. was required, which allowed you potentially to maybe have the best part of your career yet. You know, it's it's a beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, definitely the most rewarding yeah. part of my career. So I wouldn't, I kind of try not to be competitive with myself yes, anymore yes, as well. Yes. If that makes yeah. sense. That's another thing. Learning not to compete with yourself is, you know, but other people is a really good one, but yourself is okay. the best one. Yes. Because when you can go, okay, you don't need to better yourself again, yeah. Again, again, yeah. again. Like it's exhausting. That drive, it's exhausting. And actually, Actually, you don't need to do it. You can, you can, you can have success without having to um, throw everything to the wind to get it. Like you can have the balance, mm -hmm. and I think that that's the best thing I found in my life is sort of turning off. You know, because mm -hmm. then everything, all the great ideas come. Yeah, when I turn off. They don't come, I, I was reading something about brainstorming, how it doesn't work, and it really doesn't work. You need to come to meetings with ideas. You can't come up yes. with ideas in meetings because yes. that pressure cooker, it's not healthy. It's not a healthy way of doing it. It's much healthier to get your ingredients before yes. 
and then, you know, come and then cook together. That's a whole different way of, of working. And once I'd realised that, I think I've had, you know, some of the most ref- self-reflective and socially reflective thoughts that I've ever had. And then you kind of get into kind of really great bits where you feel that you're, there's a bit of thought leadership and a bit of kind of seeing the world in a way where you can help become a good person within it, mm. a good actor within it. Rankin, this has just been phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Oh, thank you. And I, I hope that we... I always feel like I'm just some bloke, like, talking, you know, so it's so no, funny. No, like, I mean... I never, this is the imposter syndrome. This is the imposter... Like, What's no, the reaction you know. to this and how many people you would have creatively stimulated? And And I really, really hope that it's not another... 15 years or 10 years until I meet you again. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll be a bit older then. But it's just an honour and a privilege. And normally now I would hand over to read out your letter to your younger self. But listeners, this is because it's Rankin. It's our first ever in four years. I'm not going to know. Rankin's going to record this privately. And so when you hear it, I'm going to hear it. But for now, thank oh, you, wow. Rankin, for all Sorry your time. Sorry about that. <laughs> And thank you, thank you, thank you. It is a milestone moment in my career. Much love to you. Oh, you're a star. Thank you. I'm honoured. And my wife is very excited. Now, Rankin, over to you. A letter to my younger self. Well, that's going to be tough because I'm not the kind of person who would ever write to myself as I believe in learning from my mistakes and no regrets. Instead, this letter is for all those people, whatever their background, that feel creative and have a burning desire to have their ideas realised and heard. Dear you, here are nine pieces of my advice, but they're just my thoughts and you can take or leave them as you want. One, be a contrarian. Someone once said to me that you should never be afraid of contradicting yourself because that humility to accept the other contrary view allows you to keep learning and questioning everything. I really believe that this is at the heart of what it means to be creative. The world is awash with echo chambers and the loss of proper debate. Without the outliers that push and pull at the fabric of society and culture, we hurtle towards conflict and misunderstanding. As such, my advice to you is that you find an acceptance for other people's views and opinions, whilst not being afraid to question them and yourself. Two, whatever your reality is right now, it will change. The people you know around you, especially as you start your chosen career, will probably be around in 20, 30 or 40 years. Treat them as you would like to be treated. I know this from my own personal experience of being someone who through a crippling shyness would show off in a room. I know this because I believed in stereotypes around what a photographer, a director or a creative should be. One of the greatest things that I've learned is that a creative can be whatever they want to be. They don't have to be a stereotype. So be polite, be a collaborator. Three, on collaboration, work with people who are better than you, that know more than you, and you will always learn and your work will always be improved. Four, instead of saying you're going to do something, just do it. You will learn so much more from the act of creativity that it will become your education. That's not to say that thinking about things is wrong, but just talking about them down the pub will get you nowhere. Think deeply, 
not just about your work, but about yourself. Because when you make things creatively, you have a responsibility to yourself, the subjects and the audience. Remember that it's also your job to push yourself and others, but that is in no way an excuse for being a dick. Five, balance time. I can only say this because I was rubbish at it. Make time for yourself, your friends and your family. You're going to need it. It is nourishment that perpetuates great thought and work and you need to refill and reset. However, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be hardworking because every successful person I know is. Six, get bored. In this crazy world that is now 24-7 on, you need to allow yourself to be bored. You need to find a space where you turn off, disconnect and think. The best ideas and self-reflection come from this. Seven, your map. Remember that this is your life. It's not somebody else's. So letters and advice like this are useful, but they're not your route to success. You need to create your own map and remember that it will always be changing because you will have to make it up as you go along. Eight, do not be scared. There is very little value in it and it is something that every successful person shares. Whether it's called imposter syndrome, stage fright or showing off to cover your shyness, it doesn't matter. Overcoming your fear, just diving in is the best piece of advice I can give you. Nine, read. Whether you listen to audiobooks or actually read them, make sure that this is part of your life for your life. Reading is not only the best way to relax, but also the best way to nourish your soul. It allows you to contemplate on ideas whilst also being inspired. Do not just read things within your chosen genre, as that will only lead to imitation. Read broadly and widely, because you need to keep learning and being inquisitive. Oh, and finally, finally, admit your mistakes, especially to yourself, but openly to others. Try and find the positive within those mistakes and improve. Don't be afraid to speak up when you think you might be wrong. Some of the best thoughts and ideas come from the most random places. And if you don't have an open forum when discussing work or ideas, nothing gets said. So that's it. That's my advice. Take it or leave it. But whatever you do, good luck. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Holly.co.